0: Art and Culture Collide Tonight we feature Ian with an interview from the Toronto Trek Science Fiction Convention in Canada and Chris with a story on parasitic computing But first up, here's the news with Tim Baines
1: (laughs) University of California scientists claim that dope smoking dads double the risk of cot death. A survey was conducted with over 400 parents, half of which had healthy infants and half who had infants die from sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS. The results reveal that when fathers use cannabis, the risk of cot death was doubled regardless of whether this was around conception, during pregnancy or after birth. Why DOPE should increase the risk of SIDS even at conception isn't clear, but the key ingredient, tetrahydrocannabinol, closely resembles a signalling chemical in the body called anandamide that affects sperm and embryos. Surprisingly, the result did not reveal any increase in risk with maternal use. This may be because so few women in the study smoke cannabis or admitted to it, or it could be because men smoke more cannabis more often than women. However, Ed Mitchell, a SIDS expert at Auckland University, said that the major problem is paternal tobacco smoking when pregnant. This can make the risk of SIDS as much as 15 times higher. Researchers at the University of Wisconsin are developing a system that will enable people, enable the blind, to see using neurons in their tongue the device converts images from a camera into a pattern of electrical pulses on electrodes that stimulate the tongue Wisconsin neuroscientist and physician Paul Baccarita is one of the device's inventors and he noted you don't see with the eyes you see with the brain an image we see ultimately becomes nerve pulses no different from those from the big toe to see people rely on the brain's ability to interpret those signals correctly that people can decode nerve pulses as visual information when they might come from sources other than the eyes shows how adaptable or plastic the brain is. The Tongue might seem like a bizarre substitute for an eyeball, but there's a growing body of research that says the tongue may in fact be the second best place on the body for receiving visual information from the world and transmitting it to the brain. The scientists say that volunteers testing the prototype soon lose awareness of on-the-tongue sensations. They then perceive the stimulation as shapes and features in space. Their tongue becomes a surrogate eye. And if you want to be totally grossed out by the eyeball-on-a-tongue technology, check out www.sciencenews.org. That's science news, all one word, www.sciencenews.org. Some of the strangest atomic nuclei ever observed have made fleeting guest appearances in a recent accelerator experiment at Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York State. Atomic nuclei found in ordinary matter are basically made up from two types of particles called protons and neutrons. The new so-called hypernuclei also include a third particle quite different from protons and neutrons and they're called lambdas. Lambda particles have been spotted before, but this is the first time that atomic nuclei with pairs of lambda particles have been generated in any great quantity. This allows for the possibility of seeing how lambda particles might interact with each other. This research could expand astrophysicists' understanding of supernovae and neutron stars whose extreme conditions would probably generate these lambda particles. And still with exotic things, a highly unusual octopus that can take on the shape of multiple marine predators has been described scientifically for the first time in this week's Biological Science Proceedings of the Royal Society of London. The mimic octopus was discovered in 1998, but it wasn't until recently that a television documentary crew funded a return to the same Indonesian waters where scientists could get another look. The lead scientist, Dr. Mark Norman, is from Museum Victoria and the University of Melbourne. He said that the octopus uses its ability to change shape and colour to take on multiple forms depending on what is nearby and threatening. This is a tactic known as dynamic mimicry. Most octopus, squid and cuttlefish can change colour and can push up different parts of their skin with muscle to recreate branches or bumps. What is unusual with this animal is it no longer no just <laughs> ooh, it is no longer just matching the background, but also fully impersonating single animals. Lyme disease is a nasty bit of work caused by a corkscrew shaped bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi. It moves from a mouse or a deer to a human by blood-eating ticks. The symptoms range from something like the flu and a loss of appetite to severe arthritic and neurological pain. And the people most at risk are those who spend a lot of time in the woods around northeastern and north-central USA. So why do we care? Well, here's the interesting thing. Recent studies in the New England Journal of Medicine concluded that the disease is both difficult to catch and in most cases easy to treat. Yet 16,000 cases of Lyme disease were reported in 1999, 25 times higher than the number of cases in 1982. Whilst the disease may be more prevalent... It was suggested in the articles that the anxiety over Lyme disease had induced more cases than the disease itself. People who expected themselves to be ill actually acquired the symptoms of disease they were most anxious about. So Discovery's advice is, don't worry, be healthy.
2: Hello, this is David Bellamy, honestly it is, my favourite animal is sea otter and my favourite community science show, what else but bear
0: At the Toronto Trek science convention, science fiction convention in Canada this year, marine mammalogist turned science fiction writer Peter Watts spoke with Ian Wolfe about his ideas on how first contact with extraterrestrials should be written biologically plausible aliens and the evolution of sex applied to aliens.
3: I was essentially a marine mammologist for 20 years. Um, I have basically been paid by the animal rights movement to defend marine mammals and the you um, know the U.S. fishing industry to blame marine mammals and the Canadian government to ignore marine mammals. And after 20 years of this, I decided that since I was fictionalizing science anyway, I might as well add some characters and plot and try and write for a bigger market than the Journal of Theoretical Biology. So my first novel was Starfish new york times notable book it's doing well the sequel is coming out this fall in between there is a little thick-ass collection of short stories called 10 monkeys 10 minutes from a small obscure uh, press in in calgary um i don't know how well that's doing and i don't really care the next novel i'm, I'm actually planning on writing actually is a first contact story uh-huh and it's it's uh I I hope it's going to be sort of the ultimate kick-ass first contact in that that the aliens will be biologically plausible, that the signals will be... uh, The hook is, in effect, we we pick up an alien um, radio transmission and we get all excited about it. But in fact, um, as it turns out, we're not actually receiving a transmission that's intended for us at all. What we're essentially getting is the equivalent of, at the next stroke, it will be 3 o'clock precisely, that it's simply a a time-keeping signal that is is being basically broadcast around the universe to keep various planets on on uh... on the same sink and um... the reason it started the reason we have just recently picked it up is because somebody has essentially just set up a base in our backyard in the root cloud or something so we have to go and see it And ideally the way i would like to, be, to see, it hand, see it handled would be to have you know an entire season uh, con- concentrating on simply receiving signals no special effects to speak of um, Uh, an entire story arc basically built around the the religious fundamentalist's responses, the politician's responses, the human response just to the revelation that we are not alone. Um, And follow that with, you know, an exploration of a truly alien... I think the problem with... with, um, you're walking a bit of a fine line, in that you can't make an alien too alien, because wherever it is, whatever it's come from, it has been forged in Darwin's universe. So it's going to have certain self-interested motives. It is going to it will be a product of natural selection. Um, so in a in a, a very real way, it will be much like us. and by us, I include everything from sequoias to you know blue whales to, to people somewhere in between. Um, but on the other hand, it will be different because it is after all alien. and I think the uh, the danger that a lot of us as uh, sort of writers tend to uh, encounter is that we we tend to make things either too much like people in rubber suits because we've been too inspired by Star Trek, or not enough like people in rubber suits um, because just in the the um, in the rush to make something truly alien, we uh, create something that's biologically indefensible. I think a good example of that would be um, you read the gods themselves, I think, yes. Asimov. Now that was in many ways a damn fine book. But the aliens in that book had three sexes. Yes. And there are all sorts of really um, compelling evolutionary reasons why you would never get a three-sex system showing up. Sex itself developed as a um, countermeasure against parasites. Basically, it was something that allowed the genes to keep shuffling so that the parasites wouldn't be able to get a target block on our immune systems. Um, Gender, the idea of a male versus female, is something that resulted from competition within the species. Um, a bunch of us started producing small Ganes because they were cheaper to make and they could flood the market and they brought you know, fewer and fewer nutrients to, to the ova. And as a result you got this sort of a divergent evolution where, where at one end of the scale you had to have something producing only a very few large eggs just loaded with nutrients. And at the other end you had millions of these fire and forget um, Missiles basically loaded with the blueprints and uh, at a delivery system, but nothing else. Essentially, in that sense, males are parasites on females because we're basically using the female to gestate the offspring, where just the egg, because the egg is so many thousands of times larger. Basically, the females got the whole, the whole has to pay the whole cost. We don't have you know two sperm getting together; they've got the genetic complement, but they don't have the uh, they don't have the nutrition nutritional complement. So, the idea of, of gender evolving that way involves a um, sort of a, a twin peaks of fitness. You can you get away. a third species being involved? Larry Niven with his puppeteer aliens. They have three sexes. There's really there's a male, there's a female, and there's a receiver. So sort of like digger wasps or other sorts of creatures that implant their embryos, their, their, their fertilized eggs in another creature to gestate. They, they evolve with a third species. I could see. Like yeah. If, if if you're talking about essentially a host. Yes. Where are simply get to parasitize. I mean, I don't know if I would consider the the victim of an human wasp to be um, a third sex. Well, if you were an intelligent species and they were also, yes. you might consider them. You culturally. could. I could see. I could see perhaps taking a. Um, a what you're basically talking about is surrogate mums. Yes. And I suppose you could do a series of uh, you know, selective breeding program or genetic engineering. You could take one sex and sort of turn it into a. Um, Turned it into almost sort of a, a an evolutionary blind alley, a little degenerate female that, that essentially acts as a a brood sac. Yeah, and that would yeah that would work. That wouldn't be strictly a separate sex. No. Um, but actually, that's a really cool idea. I mean, you start off with two sexes and then one of them forks. Yeah. But you couldn't start with um, three sexes because you've essentially got a range of strategies here, and you've got fitness. Mm-hmm. That is high at both ends of the range, but is low in the middle. So you can have two sexes. You can either put all your money into all your eggs in one basket, or you can make a million baskets with no no yolk around the egg. Right. But if you try and have it both ways, you're going to fail in both. And that's really the only place where a third sex could come into the landscape, and it mm. simply wouldn't succeed. Uh, Alien Nation the series. Oh, okay. They also had you know the three sexes, and I think they're just throwing in. I mean, for some reason, people seem to think that three is Alien. You watch do uh, the space above and beyond get down yeah. yeah, You know, they're all the the alien spaceships have sort of these weird tripartite yes. Yeah. You know, the 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 Martians in the nineteen fifties adaptation of War of the Worlds had the three eyes. It's yeah. like we need something that looks alien. It's gotta have through Raman. Raman's do everything in three. Yeah. Um, why the hell is three such a the puppeteers are three legged. I mean they're very cool. Um but uh, uh, in any one particular case, I think that, that you know, a tripartite alien is very cool. But it, it almost seems to, it's become a cliché that if you want something to be truly alien and you don't want anybody to ask too many questions about it, you, you give it a triradiate axis. It's going be green. And, <laughs> and, um, and I think maybe the three sexes sort of came along, sort of rose from that, that mindset. And it just doesn't work So, the, so the aliens... We'll have to have a maximum two sexes from our understanding. Except that your idea, I really like your idea of a degenerate, you know, accessory sex. I mean, I have to admit, I had not thought of that, and that is really damn cool. (laughs) I may even steal that idea. (laughs)
0: Was science fiction writer Peter Watts discussing alien evolution with Ian Wolfe at the Toronto Trek Science Fiction Convention? You can read more about Peter Watts and his work on his website at www.rifters.com. That's www.rifters.com. Coming up, parasitic computers. to Discovery, the National Science Radio Show, broadcast nationally via Sat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Now, if you thought junk mail was a drag on your computing resources, Chris Stewart reports on the latest in unrequested internet intrigue, parasitic computing.
2: If you own a computer and face it what hip, modern, thinking, naughties kind of person doesn't then you've probably noticed that your little electronic friend has ways to amuse itself when you're not around. It may go into screensaver mode if you're not off for a while. With modern operating systems, and even with Windows, those spare moments while you're making a cup of coffee can be used to update software, defragment a hard drive, or scan for viruses. And if you joined that alien hunting craze known as the SETI at Home project a few years ago, then you can allocate any idle time on your PC to crunch data from a scan of the heavens in a search for signals from extraterrestrial beings. But what if I told you I could use your internet-connected computer to help solve complex mathematical problems whenever I want to, without loading any software onto your computer, without your consent? I could, in fact, employ as many computers as I like to do my work. Any computer communicating with the outside world is fair game, and there's nothing any of you out there could do about it short of pulling the internet plug. This is exactly the idea proposed and successfully tested in the August 30 issue of Nature by a group of mathematicians and physicists at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, USA. They call this form of internet infiltration parasitic computing because they can suck to processing time from other computers across the globe like so much warm blood. Now there's no need to take the sharp stick to your modem just yet. The method devised by the Notre Dame team is only useful in solving a small handful of obscure mathematical problems. So you needn't concern yourself over the possibility of persons unknown using your laptop to bring down civilization as we know it. Parasitic computing works by placing little calculations into the communications that computers exchange when connected to the internet. See, every time your computer says hi to another, it sends off a small bundle of information. If you ask your browser of choice to fetch a website about dog sledding in Siberia it will send off a package of data towards the Siberian Internet server. When that server receives your request, it will fire information back at you and soon you're playing with virtual huskies. What if something happens to your request en route? Well, the communication protocols have a built-in safeguard against message corruption. Each time a communication is made, the sender computer quickly calculates a number called the checksum and bundles this number along with the message. The checksum is a little like telling someone the number of words you send them in an email. If they receive a different number of words from the number you told them, then they know something's gone wrong. When a computer receives a request, it calculates its own checksum and compares it with the one riding along with the message. If they don't agree, then the computer just simply throws the message away. Now, how can we use this to our advantage? Well, imagine you've been given the mind-numbing task of going through the street map of Sydney to find the shortest route from the Blue Mountains to Coogee Beach. You start by choosing a route and measuring the distance. And then you choose another, and another, and pretty soon you're bored stupid. You have so many possible combinations of streets to measure. But what if you could trick your friends into taking one route each and measuring its length? Well, that would be worthwhile, only if it took you less time to trick them than it would be for you to do the problem yourself. This is the sort of mathematical problem for which parasitic computing comes to the fore. There's a set of difficult problems in mathematics that are designated NP-complete. One example is known as the travelling salesman problem, in which a hypothetical salesman tries to minimise the distance for a trip between many different cities, only visiting each city once. These sorts of problems have no simple formula to quickly calculate the desired answer, and so typically, the only way to attack them is to try many different possible solutions until you find one that works. You test each possible solution in turn against the specific set of criteria that defines the problem, over and over again. The checksum is the key to parasitic computing. The Notre Dame researchers reasoned that if they could send the trial solution as a fake internet request and include the testing criteria as the checksum, then the computer at the other end would do the testing for them. It would reject any message that didn't fit the checksum, that is, any trial solution that failed to satisfy the mathematical criteria, and accept any true solution. The researchers have tested this scheme with a well-known mathematical puzzle called a satisfiability problem, a simple yet convoluted logical equation with a finite number of possible solutions. They sent out the solutions to computers in America, Asia, and Europe, each disguised as an internet request. Their computation was quickly performed by the recipient computers and the owners didn't see anything more unusual than, say, a request for a web page that doesn't exist. Now all this certainly raises some interesting ethical issues. After all, I can get your computer to do my work without your consent. And this is where parasitic, parasitic computing differs from dispersed computation ideas like the SETI at home project. They all require the explicit cooperation of the computer's owner, usually by downloading and running some software. Parasitic computers uses the standard and absolutely necessary communication protocols that make the Internet possible. Now, one group of researchers solving a quick problem for a lark may not sound like much, but imagine if this idea catches on. Suddenly, everyone's going to be trying to use everyone else's computers to do their work. Your computer's going to get swamped, never pausing to fire up your word processor for dealing with the constant checksum comparisons in some obscure mathematical problem. Yep, I'd say a bloody great can of worms has just been opened and dumped on the Info Superhighway. And they're the parasitic type, too.
0: Thank you to Chris for giving us the lowdown on parasitic computing. Thank you. with some late breaking news
1: on its next mission the space shuttle Atlantis will be carrying some very special human kidney cells researchers have known for some time that cells respond differently in different environments say in a petri dish as opposed to a human body what they haven't known and what they hope to find is that cells grow remarkably well in microgravity If you take a kidney or liver or brain cell out of the human body and put it in a standard flat culture on the ground or desk, each cell will lose its special features, meaning essentially it no longer knows that it's a kidney, liver or brain cell. This means the genes no longer produce or express the distinctive proteins of a kidney, liver or brain. They lose the ability to regulate their genes and remain undifferentiated. But in space, cells are happier and they grow in their differentiated form. Growing these cells in three dimensions is more like how they would grow in the human body, which is what they appear to do well in microgravity of space. Now, we can isolate what elements of the genes are expressed to find out what proteins they're producing that makes kidney cells kidney cells. Researchers hope to move beyond the mere mapping of the thirty to 40,000 human genes and look inside the genome itself to figure out exactly how genes do what they do and why.
0: brings us to the end of this edition of Discovery. If you would like to contact us, you can reach us via email on discoveryradio at yahoo.com.au. That's discoveryradio, all one word, at yahoo.com.au. Contributing to the program tonight were Tim Baines, Ian Wolfe and Chris Stewart. Discovery has been produced by Gina Satori with technical assistance from lachlan Watmore in the studios of 2 Sydney. I'm Angelique Hutchison, and you can join us for more science next week on Discovery.